Hello and welcome to a special episode of the European show where I'm joined by Nick as usual. Hi everyone, welcome back. But today we're joined by a special guest, current Ranks FC host, Jack Collins. Hey mate, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an honour to be on the show, so thank you for inviting me. It's, it's also an honour to have you on as you are our first proper guest on the podcast. Oh, now I'm even more honoured. You've, uh, you've oh, I, I feel very touched. Thank you very much. And so, so the first thing before we get into the games, we just really want to get to grips with how you've got into what you do now. Like, what did you study at university if you went to university? And yeah, and how your path or how you got to where you are today, really. Well, so I always kind of vaguely wanted to be a journalist um, when I was younger and so I did lots of different things. I played football, I mean, to a reasonable standard. I played a little bit in centres of excellence and whatever around London, but I was way too small to begin with um, and also just not not good enough. Um, so I went on and started writing about things. And to be honest, I, I went to uni and I did English literature um, and I always wanted to be a music journalist was my kind of original plan, my original plan of action. And I went and I was the music editor of things. And while I was at uni, I did a load of radio and did a load of sort of TV hosting. That's where I kind of got the bug for it, if you will. And then from there, I left and, and went and became a bit of a journalist. I worked for a couple of careers, publications, all sorts of, of different things. I basically write for anyone that would have me. Um, and at the time I set up Fulhamish, I was invited to set up Fulhamish with a friend of mine, Sammy James. And we basically started a Fulham podcast and started chatting and it kind of exploded a little bit. There was a bit of a huge gap in the market, if I'm honest, for, for genuinely good Fulham content. We went kind of from strength to strength, got nominated for a few awards and things. And at that point, I was like, oh, maybe I could. I'd always thought about football as a as a passion project as opposed to anything else. But at that point, I was like, oh, maybe maybe this is what I should be kind of moving to the forefront in and flipped it over and, and applied for hundreds literally hundreds of jobs I, I i can't i can't sit here and tell you enough how many how many application forms i filled in over like a two hour a two-year period it was it was pretty bad bleak going at times but eventually uh someone gave me a shot and i, I got an interview at bleach report and moved in there as uh, doing social things for them and, and i basically was like why don't you have a football podcast and they were like oh we don't want one and I was like, oh, that's a shame. I'd love to have been part of it. And so they were like, no, we don't want anything. And so I started a podcast of my own. It's just called Davos Suka's Left Foot. Um, <laughs> it was purely about the World Cup um, in 2018. And it was all the me, Sam and Dean just sat around a table, chatted about the World Cup, did an episode every day during that World Cup and and kind of got it got it sorted, got it off the ground. And that was great. And when we came off the back of that World Cup, Bleacher turned back around and were like, oh, we really liked what you did. Do you want to do us a podcast? And so I was like, oh, fantastic. So that's how BR Football Ranks started. And two years later, we all left Bleacher Report. And companies having a bit of a, a makeover, if you will, let's put it that way. Um, but we all left and we set up Ranks FC. So Ranks FC is now its own little individual enterprise. We release... Once a week, every well, once a week on a Wednesday, where we do a free big ranking, and we've also got a Patreon where we do Monday and Friday drops, and yeah, it's sort of going from strength to strength at the moment. Started to to look at where we might take it next, move into some video content, all of that stuff. But that's the uh, well, that's the uh, truncated version. I'd imagine that no one wants to hear the really long version because the even the truncated version is quite long. Um, but that's where I, I got to where I am today, and and here I am now watching. 
30 bloody games of football a week and then try to comment on them all. And, you know, it's a hard life, but someone's got to do it. And and that's that's good insight as well, especially for myself, who who has gone into journalism, but I'm still wondering what I want to do as well. So I think, mate, the, the truth is that everybody, and I say this to quite a lot of people these days, nobody wants really specialists anymore. You know, everybody wants someone who can, oh, yeah, write and write a brilliant article, but also jump behind a microphone who could also jump in front of a, you know, a camera and all these different elements of it. And, and I guess that we just happen to be in a time where the media is growing in all different directions. Podcasts are huge, right? But video content's massive and YouTube's huge and all of these different elements are, are, are ticking over. And in that, it just feels like everyone is looking for for people who can do a bit of everything so that's i mean that would be my my take on it if you if you fancy writing on you know technology and sport and all of these things every single aspect you have gives you a gives you an, a kind of unique opportunity and it gives you an angle and that's what you really what you need a little a lot of luck a lot of hard work and an angle and then you then you tend to be good thank you for the insight in how you got to where you are now. And so now we'll get into get into the game straight away, where we'll first start with the Bundesliga, where obviously, in, in my opinion, the biggest, the best game of the weekend happened between Borussia Mönchengladbach and Borussia Dortmund, which finished 4-2. In, in a very end-to-end game, especially in the first, in the first half, with most notably Nico Avedi becoming the best. I mean, Nico Avedi has transformed himself into an absolute goal machine, and I'm not sure where this has come from. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's what I was trying to get at, saying he's now the best goal-scoring centre-back around, better than Sergio <laughs> Ramos. Yeah, absolutely. What a player. But there are other, other standout players, especially the man that I praise all the time, Florian Neuhaus, who... Got two assists, one for Remy Benzabaini's goal, and also Marcus Turan. And I, I, I have said previously that Florian Neuhaus is the answer to all the questions that Germany have regarding their team. Now, I, I just want to know, Jack, where do you rate Florian Neuhaus? This isn't going to affect my opinion of you if <laughs> if you hate on him. No, I don't. I, I think he's a wonderful player. He's um he's just an exceptionally enjoyable watch, isn't he? He's a little bit glidey. He has a little bit of the you know ability to to break lines, and he just makes things happen time and time again. And I think you know you look at you look at what this this uh, Gladbach team has become, and especially in the in the last couple of weeks with we tour them out and you look at what how they how they were going to create and how they were going to make things happen and i just think the neuhaus is is such a kind of key cog in the middle there and the way that he just keeps everything ticking the way that he allows that kind of break to happen on 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 a regular basis you know he is the kind of middle of that transitional phase and the way that the way that they play, I mean, look, everybody is going to want him. I think this is, uh, you know, not going to surprise anyone. You know, Bayern are looking at him. Dortmund want him, and no surprise after Friday night. But I know that Tottenham and there are different sides now really, really keeping an eye on Florian Neuhaus, 23 years old. He's such a, you know, kind of a player in the middle who makes things happen. Uh, and I just think that with players like this you have to just enjoy them for what they're worth is he perfect no of course he isn't he's not he's not the perfect footballer 
but he is an incredibly fluid, enjoyable watch. And and with all of that, you know, put together, you know, three goals, four assists in 17 games for a centre midfielder is absolutely incredible numbers in the Bundesliga. And you just, you know, you look at him and think there's only more to come. Yeah, I just want to go back to to where Jack mentioned the players who make things happen. Erling Haaland scored twice, and I mean, it, it didn't really count for much, but he's just crazy, isn't he? He, he just, every, every single Dortmund game, he's there up front. The ball gets to him, and it's just immediately a goal-scoring opportunity, and a clear one as well. And, and he just, wherever he is on the pitch, whether he's just on the edge of the box or like right, right in the six, six yard, isn't he? He just gets the ball, turns and shoots, and, and, and it almost always goes in. He's so sharp, such a good eye for goal, and such an intuition on, on where to shoot. He's like and a cheat code, isn't he? He's like a cheat code. It's like you just give him the ball anywhere, and he's like, oh, I'll just score from here. That's fine. That's exactly how, how, how I think of him. It's just so unfair to have him on the pitch. He just, all you need to do is get the ball into the box, and then, and then, and, and then Haaland picks it up and scores. It, it's crazy. I just love watching him play. It's guaranteed goals. And that Haaland Sancho link up as well has become a lot more prominent in the past few weeks when Sancho's managed to regain his form. And out of the two goals, I think my personal favourite had to be the first one. Yeah, I mean the way that they weave together is is beautiful. But I think maybe this is the this is the moment that you look at this game and you think, okay, now at the end of it, at the end of this weekend. Dortmund are seventh, right? They're they're out of the play. They're out of the Champions League spots. They're out of the Europa League spots. Never mind the Champions League spots. And and look, while I don't think they're going to finish there, you have to look at players like Haaland and Sancho, right? And you think if Dortmund don't make the Champions League, those players are going to leave. They're not here at Dortmund to to muck around and be playing low down in a, in a in a Bundesliga Europa League chase. They're there to challenge for titles. They're there to play in the Champions League and move their careers on. And that's why I think these results are so damaging for Dortmund, right? They, they, these are brilliant players and you can enjoy Sancho and, and Haaland as much as, as much as we do. And, and they're an incredibly easy watch, aren't they? They're, you know, especially when Sancho's in that kind of form where he's like bobbing and weaving through defenders when the, the flicks and tricks are all paying off. And, and like you say, Nick, the Haaland finishing school is, it's just unbelievable. He just, he just continually defies logic to put the ball in the back of the net. But if Dortmund lose these games, continue losing these games and miss out on the Champions League spots, then Dortmund fans aren't going to be watching these two players next year because they're going to both leave for pastures new. Yeah, this, this brings up a question me and me and John Jack have been asking each other quite a lot recently. Uh, uh, Dortmund feel a little bit overrated, really, because of this reputation they have from, a, from, a few, from their Klopp years and a little bit after. Well, they're pretty competitive in the Bundesliga, but recently they, they just haven't been able to perform either in, in Europe or in the, or in the domestic league. Yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. I, I don't think it's necessarily a complete hangover from the Klopp days. There have been good days since then. And you look at, I mean, a man that I imagine will come on to, Thomas Tuchel, at some point. But you look at what, what's, what's happened there over the years and they've developed a reputation as a club, a club that develops players, that brings players through, that's willing to give a chance to youth. And all of those things are great. But And you can attract youth players and young players by saying, OK, we're a bit of a stepping stone. We move players up into the like the big leagues and then off they go after a couple of years of service. And that's great. But it does leave Dortmund as a bit of a here and there club. And it means that they're quite neutrals favorite right? That most people will be like, oh, you know, unless you're talking to a, a Schalke or a Bayern fan, most people will be like, yeah, I quite like Dortmund. They're a good side. Like I, I quite happily watch Dortmund. But the fact is that they can't sit and challenge Bayern at the top of this table for a, 
sustained periods of time unless they start to become a team that holds on to players as well as develops them. And I think they're stuck in a bit of a a catch-22 where they, yes, they get players like Haaland joining them, like Sancho joining them, like Bellingham joining them, like Gio Reyna joining them, which are which are all wonderful things. But all of those players don't see Dortmund as their final destination. And that's quite a weird thing as a club to to come to terms with if you want to be challenging at the sharp end of tournaments. And one area of the Dortmund team which has really stopped them from being able to challenge Bayern, especially this season, has been their defence with, yeah. with in, that, in that game against Mönchengladbach being quite poor, being losing the ball quite easily in dangerous positions, as well as just being easily cut through like they did against Leverkusen. So how, how do you think, this question goes to both of you, obviously, how do you think Dortmund can address these defensive issues really in the future? My my main point about Dortmund's defense, what I've mentioned quite a lot in the in in, in the past and on on these episodes, is they're absolutely terrible at defending set pieces, and they're always conceding from corners and free kicks left and right, just every other week. So if if they just want to improve on just sealing their back up, th- that's where they need to begin. Just make sure they can consistently mark box players out. Don't let them comfortably get on the ball because that's where they concede the most, in my opinion. And and it's something that's pretty preventable if you just spend a, a little bit more time on the training ground it's just something you can shore up no yeah you'd think so you'd hope so that that, that you see what they're how they're conceding goals i mean there's two parts to this right one they can't set defend set pieces for love nor money which is bizarre uh, and and is something you can coach two they just seem to not have a midfield like in the last two games you know leverkusen and gladbach to be fair to them are two teams who are excellent in transition on the counter you look at the likes of Moussa Diaby and Leon Bailey and and Player and Neuhaus, who you mentioned, you know, these are players that thrive on space. So the one thing you don't do is you go, oh, yeah, run through the middle unopposed and, and and just have the freedom of freedom of the park to to pick your spot. And it seemed like they learned no lessons in those two games. It was just overwhelmingly, you know, the, the fact that the games felt like, oh, no defense, just vibes, both of them. And, it, you know, if you happen, if you do that, yes, of course, with the likes of Sancho and Haaland and Royce, all of those players have the ability to win you games. But it's a, it's sort of a chaotic tactic that just doesn't seem to really bring any joy, especially when you're playing, you know, teams like Gladbach and Leverkusen. It might work here and there against teams you know, lower than you in the league. But if you know that your defence is going to be exposed, especially if you're exposing Mats Hummels to the amount of pace that these two sides have in them, then you're going to lose games. And it doesn't seem like Dortmund have any answers. Look, we appreciate that Axel Witzel is out at the moment. And that's a huge loss because he does kind of anchor this entire setup. And Emery Chan, whilst he's done okay, is getting overrun there in the middle. But it just doesn't feel like Dortmund have any strategy to, to stop being done on the transition. And I don't know where they go from here because Eden Terzic is probably going to have to see the season out. They've said he's going to see the season out. But if he does so and he continues playing in this vein, Dortmund aren't going to get in the top four and therefore are going to be stuck in a in a rut that they can't get out of. And I think the way probably forward for Dortmund to address the midfield issues is they may have to play Emre Chan and Thomas Delaney yeah. when he's back from his suspension together in the midfield, which they do lose some of the dynamism that a player such as Jude Bellingham would offer. And obviously that would hinder their attacking output, but I don't think that really matters when you've got players like Haaland and Sancho, but it will affect them further back as well. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the, trying to get the balance in this in this Dortmund side. We've, I was talking about Chelsea on ranks earlier, and we were saying how um, deeply unbalanced the Chelsea squad is. Dortmund aren't quite as bad as that, but there are elements of this. So when when Witzel is out, especially, does feel like he does the job of two men eventually. Uh, you know, some of the time, and and when he's missing that kind of you lose that kind of aspect of it and you lose the ability to just launch attacks left right and center because Witzel is covering that ground and 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 I think now that he's out they have to look to readjust his style because otherwise you know we saw that win over Leipzig we saw you know Witzel play you know in in the first bit of that game come off injured Emre Chan had an absolute stormer and then since then it's been one sort of downhill slide for Dortmund and I'm intrigued to see how they go about dealing with it. And looking, looking, looking ahead, we we've spoken about this before. We both had different views on this, obviously because of my allegiance. Who do you think would be best fit to be the to replace Edin Terzic as the permanent manager, really, of Borussia Dortmund? You're not going to want to hear this, Jack. But the answer, yeah, is I, I know, Rose, I'm yeah. I'm expecting what it was. The, the answer is Marco Rose. I think at this, yeah. uh, the kind of rogue shout that I um that I have a kind of soft spot for is, is Florian Kervel, who I think would has done a brilliant job turning Bremen around from the absolute state they were in last season um, and have, have has kind of moved themselves up. I know they're not, you know, setting the world on fire, but they've been relatively solid through this campaign. And he has kind of put in a little bit more of a, a, a statement of, this is where we are. This is what we're about. We have a base to work off and, and kind of move from there. And in a way that Dortmund don't really. So I think he would probably be my outside shout. I quite like Florian Kerfeld. I, I, I remember saying on a previous episode, I did kind of want Nagelsmann because, I mean, I just thought Nagelsmann would fit well into, into the whole youth development kind of idea yeah. that, that Dortmund have. And they're also a very attacking team, which we... we which Nagelsmann is, has shown he can do in at Leipzig and such. So uh, I don't know exactly how well tactically he would fit with with the players he has, but it, it sounds reasonable to me that that he could do well just joining joining another Bundesliga team, another and and another team with with a similar mentality and that 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 has similar long term goals and a play style like that. So that would that, that's the manager that I personally thought would would fit in best. It'd be, a, it'd be a nice look. I, I think it would it would fit nicely. Um, it, the kind of manager you want is a kind of Brendan Rodgers-esque manager. I've always said this. Like I, I once made a claim on BBC Five Live that I thought that Brendan Rodgers would be a really good manager for Barcelona. Um, and I got, yeah, laughed, a, I got laughed off the air. Track. I got laughed off the air. Um, but I stand by it. I stand by it. I think that Brendan Rodgers would do a brilliant job at Barcelona. I think a manager of Brendan Rodgers' ilk would do a brilliant job at, at, at Dortmund. Um, you know, you want someone who is tactically astute, but also, you know, not afraid to give youth a chance. I think Nagelsmann is probably the most sensible shout in that regard. But I also think that Marco Rose will just steady the ship there. And I would be surprised if Marco Rose doesn't get it. I'm sad as that might be for you, Jack. My, my choice, because obviously I would, I don't want Marco Rose to leave, was Jesse Marsh oh, yeah. from Red Bull Salzburg. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the idea of youth development is still there. It's just on a, on a greater scale. And from how he's been doing at Salzburg and made a, uh, a competitive team, especially in the Champions League, I do think if he had a better quality of player at his disposal at Dortmund, he would be able to achieve something a lot greater. I'm not saying he'll take Dortmund to the Bundesliga, but 
I definitely think he could help them perform a lot better. That really and links does, up with Haaland. Yeah, and he also does take them kind of back to their roots as well of the Jurgen Klopp type of football they used to play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think I, I spoke to Jess. We spoke to Jesse uh, just at the end of our time at BR, actually, and he's a really lovely geezer. Um, first and foremost but secondly he basically what became really clear over the course of that interview was how loyal he feels to the Red Bull setup now look plenty of people have opinions about the Red Bull setup and how it affects football and whether it's a good or a bad thing and I think all of those opinions are valid and but what what Red Bull have done is provided a pathway for youth football Uh, they've provided a lot of talent with the you know the pathway to get to senior serious football in in Europe and with all of those things, I, I think that, you know, they have, there are things to be commended, even if you don't like, and I don't really like the way that they, you know, do business. Um, but I think Jesse feels that loyalty and I think his next stop will be Leipzig. Right, and that, that obviously also depends on Nagelsmann. where Nagelsmann ends up next. Yeah. And so my final question based on this game is, um, who are Borussia Mönchengladbach going to draw for the quarterfinals? In the Champions League, because <laughs> obviously they have managed to beat Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund now in the space of two weeks, and so I am entirely confident that they can easily beat Manchester City. Yeah, now. no big, no biggie, no biggie. I'm sure. I, I mean, all the way, mate. If you're going to have one more season with Marco Rose as the manager, then uh, then you need to make you make it make it count. Exactly, he managed to take Salzburg to a Europa League semi final. So I think a final with Mönchengladbach is probably a lot more achievable. <laughs> in, in fairness, last season it was Atlanta. Year before that was Ajax. Before that was Roma. Every year there's a fairy tale team. Why, why, why can't Mönchengladbach be this year's? It's but not entirely impossible. If they hadn't drawn City, who I think are probably the most consistent team in Europe right now, um, I would I would agree with you. Although Kevin De Bruyne might well be still injured by that point. You never know. You never know. Exactly, and, and Guardiola is known to overthink games, so I am <laughs> I'm hoping that it happens in this game. And so the team that everyone is chasing in the in the Bundesliga, Bayern Munich, played Schalke, and obviously, as we all know, Schalke are quite a poor team, and Bayern beat them four 0 with their standout player obviously being Yosu Kimmich, who was proving why he's one of the best midfielders around. We're getting three assists, all of them great balls to to the scorers. Joshua Kimmich, I think, is the most complete midfielder in the world. Um, and there was a period last year and before he got injured at the start of this season where I thought he was the best player in the world, or at least the form player in the world. There's, there's almost nothing that he can't do and I'm continually just blown away by by his performances. It it shouldn't surprise me at this point, but it still does every time. I'm like, oh, do you remember when Joshua Kimmich was a right back? You know, and, that, and now he's just sort of dominating midfields by himself. He's creating chances. He's an incredible ball winner. His engine never seems to tire. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Bayern's form, you know, faltered while Joshua Kimmich was injured. Um, and, and now, you know, you start to see him returning to that full kind of slate of strength and just what a performance. I mean, I, I felt a bit sorry for Schalke, who are now almost doomed, um, I think. And it, it's quite a bleak, it looks quite bleak for them now. They're, 
10 points off safety and uh are you are you certain that they're gonna get relegated because because i am i'm pretty convinced that schalke are gone even if you know this was billed as the 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 battle of the two best strikers in in the bundesliga (laughs) at at that point you know matthew hopper and and robert Lewandowski, who were both on the same amount of goals for 2021 until this point but uh i I don't think even matthew hopper can save them I was disappointed when I saw Matthew Hopp getting subbed off without scoring. <laughs> and then obviously Lewandowski has scored again, taking his tally to to 23. And so game by game, every time he scores, he does look more and more likely that he's going to break that good Muller record, which only a few years ago was seen as impossible to break, but until, until now. And Ralph, Ralph Farman, the, the Schalke goalie, was kept the man managed to keep the score down, and if if he wasn't in goal, I I could see the scoreline being close to the eight nil it was in the first game of the season as he well. Thirty one shots, Bayern. Thirty one. This is absolutely nuts. Now thirteen on target, but it was like you know a blizzard on his goal. So fair play to Ralph Farman because a lot of people would have just given up. I think uh, you know especially it was only it was only two nil until till the eighty eighth minute as well, obviously. So. You know, he he did a, a magnificent job. It's it's weird that you come out praising a goalkeeper out after a four 0 loss, isn't it? But uh, in this case, I think it's fully justified. And and Farman obviously making up for the disaster of the season he he had at Norwich on loan, where he barely played. <laughs> we don't talk about that. Bleak. <laughs> and this created a gap in the title race with Mainz surprisingly beating. RB Leipzig 3-2 in a game where Mainz actually, you would think they'll be suffering from losing uh, Mateta to Crystal Palace, but no, their centre-back Niakate provided two of the goals. And then the third goal being scored by Leandro Barrero, who was one of the first players from Luxembourg to score in the Bundesliga. And it, unlike Schalke, it's looking a lot more positive for Mainz as as two good results, one against Dortmund and the other against Leipzig, shows that they they do have the resolve to try and possibly escape relegation, and they have closed the gap on on Cologne. They were unlucky against Bayern as well. Um, they they played brilliantly against Bayern and, and were unlucky to lose that game. And and so yeah, things are things are looking up for Mainz. Uh, yeah, and Klopp's old side, of course. Um, but he, it just tends to be moving onwards. And in in other news, Luka Jovic scored once again for Frankfurt, showing that Zinedine Zidane was clearly using him wrong. And Hertha Berlin sacked their manager Bruno Labbadia as well as their sporting director, with Labbadia being replaced by ex-manager and player Paul Derrida. And this does add to a bit of the circus that is Hertha Berlin, really. Yeah, they're, they're chaos, aren't they, over over Hertha? It just feels like everything they do is draped in drama. Um, and I, I think that's potentially just from appointing Jürgen Klinsmann, to be honest, and just putting him in charge of things. It was always going to invite uh, a bit of chaos. But yeah, I mean, this side is is better than what they where they're sitting in the table, although I said that uh, about Werder Bremen and who are, who are simply a couple of points above them. Uh, but it does feel like everything they do is just feels like a circus. You're absolutely right. And it, I mean, look, I, I just hope it calms down a little bit over there. And I saw the pictures of, of Matteo Genduzzi sort of, 
throwing his arms around and, and doing that kind of classic Gendouzi pose. Um, and it, it just feels like, you know, all of it just needs to calm down a little and just return to the sensibilities of, of where they're actually playing football and things will probably move on up for them. And, and they're obviously a team with, with great potential as well as they have a great stadium. They they have a lot of money as well. They're just spending it wrong. They they should adopt a, a certain model. Whether the, they, I think they would suit a model of signing young players and then developing them from then on. Because Berlin, it's it would be an attractive place to go to, which would help them attract more players. They just have to spend their money right instead of just splashing it on on people that may not play a lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, your cap is the capital, isn't it? It's not necessarily a city with a massively rich footballing heritage in recent times, at least. And but but you'd imagine that a European capital with the the culture and and life that Berlin does would be, you know, a hotbed for for people wanting to come. And yet here we are looking at this Hertz team struggling once again with with no one kind of around them. So. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's just a question of somebody. It's almost like somebody just needs to get the club's head down and 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 work on what they want to be and what they where they want to get to. Because at the moment, it feels like they're sort of throwing cash into a void a little bit. And obviously, if I was a player right now, I'd prefer to go to Union Berlin as they are performing <laughs> a lot better. Exactly, exactly. So now we're going to have our a small break, and then we'll be back with Syria and Liga. Welcome back. Uh, so we're going to start with the main game in, in Italy this week, where it was Milan against Atalanta, which finished 3-0 to Atalanta. It was a game where Milan were really let off the hook, only only due to other results, as they were they were pretty, pretty poor, to be honest. They started brilliantly. The first minute and a half, Milan were unbelievable. And then after that, it just went to pot frankly and it never came back Atalanta were brilliant though I was I mean you know praise and criticize Milan all you like and you can because they weren't very good but Atalanta were absolutely irresistible and in this form Atalanta are are a match for any side in Europe right when 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 this side hits its hits its stride it's, it's almost impossible to contain them and, and I thought they were just absolutely exceptional on the weekend and maybe might be just just too far outside this this title race to to really kind of genuinely challenge themselves but I think it was a reminder that there are sides here Atalanta Lazio in particular who are going to have a say in this title race without necessarily being in it I, th- I think it's a little bit crazy because when when we heard about that Papu Gomez got, a, got into a fight with, with Gasparini and he wanted to leave and there was a little bit of chaos in the dressing room, I, I thought that th- this whole Atlanta spirit and, and attacking mentality was kind of going to crash a little bit because they would lose their captain and not, and more than that, they would lose this great player. And, and, and John Jack actually asked me about this and, and I was essentially certain that there would, there would be at least a wobble in Atlanta's form. But if anything, they've just gotten better. 
Ilicic has essentially just arrived and began pulling the team forward. And he, he apart from his penalty, his contributions to the match weren't properly reflected in in the in the scoreline. But for me, he was the best player on the pitch. Absolutely, he was just there creating all the time. No, he's just such a wonderful watch, isn't he? Like when when Ilicic is on form, and and look, credit to Gasparini because. You know, there have been Joseph Bolisic has always been an incredibly talented footballer, right? But nowhere have we seen him really finally sustained form until he came to Atalanta and suddenly started putting on clinics week in, week out, Champions League, Serie A, you name it. Ilicic was doing what Ilicic does best. And I'm I'm exactly with you, Nick. I, I thought that it was when when Papu came out of this side. He's obviously the one in the three four one two. He's the the kind of crux where all of it came through and. When they lost that, I was like, okay, they could be in real trouble here because it, you know, it's it's a, it's a role that not anyone can do. It's quite a tricky kind of uh, thing to play because of the way that 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 man is kind of the the creative spark for all of it. But Ilicic has taken up some of that. I thought Pesina played really well um, in that hole, and we've seen a couple of players sort of running off there. Malinovsky's played there a little bit. Alexi Moranchuk started to have a little bit of a say, and. For the first time, it feels like they might be okay without Papu. And he obviously looks like he's off to the wrong side of Seville. Um, but, it, you know, and, and that's a real shame, mostly for me. Um, but it, it's one of those things where, you know, they, they look right now like they're going to be okay without him. And look, Papu was such an engine room of this team and such a heart and such a soul of what it was about. But the fact that they have stuck to Gasparini's guns, they've they've gone, okay, if you think this is what we can get to without you know, without Papu, then we will trust you with it. And the players are paying him back in, you know, in, in kind. Um, I also think that it's quite important that in having lost a reference man, like this one player that the, that, that the midfield looks to pass to and such, just this one person everyone tries to get the ball to, they, right, they lose a little bit of organization, but it's more confusing for their rivals who set up game plans around trying to choke Atalanta in this, in this one spot trying to just drown out Papu Gomez so they can't get the ball forward and such. And now that he's missing from the team, they don't really, they have to learn to adapt to Atalanta's new structure and and just find a way to cope with their new way of playing in which they they, they don't really rely on this one singular player to, to just keep getting the ball up all the time. And, and we, we see this happen quite a, lot of the, quite a lot of the time in other teams. For example, when Timo Werner left RB Leipzig, uh, before the end of the season, everyone thought that suddenly Leipzig wouldn't be able to score anymore. But then, just not having the reference striker, the one person that the that the opposition defense always had to mark, actually benefited them a little bit because they suddenly could just confuse their opposition a little bit, find some some ideas and some and, and suddenly the, the opposition defense just couldn't. We were just at a bit of a loss and and had to reformulate their plans to to cope with Leipzig and I think the same the same is happening with 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 Atalanta now that they are that, that their opponents are just struggling to 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 understand the, the, the way that Atalanta have adapted to losing this one player yeah no I think you're absolutely right and I mean to be fair I thought there was a, a strange thing the the strangest thing in the lineups for me was um was Mata playing for for Milan making his full debut in attacking midfield in the 10 almost and the game just passed him by um it was a really strange first half he didn't seem to get you know get into it at all he obviously came on in the Cagliari game uh in in the kind of the defensive midfield spot and I thought he did okay and then 
came on, you know, started against Atalanta, was supposed to be the kind of fulcrum of this attacking thought. And and that bit was really weird for me because I thought that it, it gave them the chance. It gave Atalanta a huge chance to to basically be able to choke Milan. And, and you know, and, and you're talking about this, the way that teams choke Atalanta. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, they found the they found the 10. And, and, and when that was Papu, they knew that everything was going to go through him. You can't always stop that because Papu is Papu. But, you know, at least they knew what they were going to do. And I think that Atalanta must have seen Maita in the in the spot here and being like oh that's delightful I will take that because that is such a you know something that we can we can definitely do and Brahim came on for the second half I thought Brahim did okay um and, and Sam said this on the podcast the other day but you know the the way that uh, it happened and in the second half every time Brahim got the ball on the turn Atalanta just took him out you know he just just absolutely you know took it took his legs and and once that happened there wasn't really any, you know, any way for them to bounce back into it. It felt like they were, they, they were, they were unable to make chances, and 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 that's how Atalanta choked Milan. But Milan had no ability to do the same the other way, and that's because, you know, as you say, the the fact that Atalanta's attack has been diversified through various strategies now, and so Ilicic dropping in and Piscina managing to kind of slide out a little bit wider and and find that gaps, and then the the fullbacks galloping forward. And, and Atalanta just, yeah, again, un, when they're in that kind of mood, very, very difficult to stop. And Milan looked like they were a little bit lost at the races, to be honest. And and obviously, as as I said, this this does keep Milan at the top of the table because obviously Inter drew nil nil against Udinese in a game which they now wish they probably got some sort of result in as well, as it would have taken them a lot closer to it would have actually taken them above Milan. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, a, a silly dropped points, to be honest, from an Inter perspective. I mean, I think it's probably a good thing for the title race um, that they haven't just stormed into a lead ahead of Milan. But but again, they'll look at that and drop points. They also debunked my theory, which is annoying because I, I, I subscribe quite heavily to the theory that when Stefano Sensi plays, Inter Milan win. Um, and they he came off the bench and they didn't win. So I was quite upset about that um, because he's at least, he, he's ruined my theory. But I'm going to go with the run that he didn't get given enough minutes uh, and that's why they didn't win the game. And then obviously uh, another team in the title race, Juventus, they beat Bologna 2-0 with goals for Arthur and Weston McKenney who brought out the Harry Potter celebration. <laughs> but I enjoyed one of, the, one of the more interesting games of the weekend was Roma against Spezia, two teams who did play against each other in the Coppa Italia in in a game which Spezia won in the dying moments then, but then obviously the result has been changed to a three 0 Spezia win because Roma made too many substitutions. This game finished four three with Roma scoring in the dying minutes to to win with a with a finally take cutback by Lorenzo Pellegrini. the last two minutes of this were absolutely insane it was like how on earth Spezia thought they'd got a last minute you know equaliser to only then be undone by Pellegrini is you know the kind of stuff that you write in football books but doesn't really come true very often um but it was it was incredibly enjoyable and you know the the game between these two in the Coppa Italia was was enjoyable too and uh, the highlight of which was Ricardo Saponara scoring an absolutely sumptuous chip um, Sapanara is one of my favourite players because he basically doesn't belong to this era. 
he's like he's like a throwback to the era where footballers are like smoked on the sidelines and you know and, and sort of just had long hair and played like delicious passes through defenses that just didn't expect it he's like Rui Costa's bastard son um but he um he scored that outrageous chip and I enjoyed that a lot but this game was just you know chaos from start to finish and uh, and a really really enjoyable watch and and Spencer a team that have kind of coined the team that defies xg because it always seems to be they either win a game or get a result from obviously heavily outperforming their xg or conceding a lot less than their xg like that napoli game a few weeks ago and now there's a result that nick would like to talk about mainly because of what in what i've said in the past about a specific team so 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 last episode right john jack asked me if if I considered Napoli to be title contenders, and I was quite cautious with this because I, I didn't want to be too reactionary and just, just, just see. Oh, they've been winning a lot recently. Yeah, of course. No, I, I just wanted to wait a little bit, see if they could consistently keep up their form and, and really, get into the groove of it, right? And and John Jack completely said the opposite. He very enthusiastically said, Napoli are going to win. You can you can hold me to this at the end of the season, and and, and now I'm I'm holding you back. It's not even the end of the season, but it just goes to show that even if you have just a a, a quick good run of form, with with this three one loss that they suffered today, you you've got to be more than just winning four matches, five matches in a row. You've just got to constantly be at it. But yeah, Napoli lost yesterday in a, in a pretty rough three one loss against against Verona. The Edwin Lozano scored extremely quickly, I believe in seven seconds, but I don't think he beat Rafael Leao's record for the fastest goal. No, I, not I, quite. I, I was a miles bit. off, but not quite. Right? Oh, that's a shame. But yeah, just right off kickoff, long ball to Lozano. He controls it and scores. It was it was quite nice. I liked it. And then uh, essentially, Napoli's defending was utterly dreadful it was so so terrible everyone just looked at it on autopilot honestly it i, I don't understand how a supposedly title contending team if you want to look at it that way can play like that everyone just looked so unfocused so distracted there was no energy it, it, no marking just vibes to put it your way i guess <laughs> i i i was very sad by this result i um I didn't subscribe to the the idea that Napoli were going to win. I didn't probably go quite as hard as uh, as Jack, but I I did say that this was my favorite narrative um to come out of the season so far. The idea that Napoli were a couple of points back and just might have this kind of Maradona inspired run to the title in the year that Maradona dies. I thought there was a lot there was a lot that going for it in terms of, you know, while they're wearing this blue and white stripy kit and everyone's having a good time. Um, but Hellas don't have, seem to have any time for, for fairy tales um, and they punished them. Uh, and you're absolutely right. The back four were desperate. Maximovic in particular, I thought just a bit, I just not at the races whatsoever. Um, and we've seen this Napoli side do some brilliant, brilliant things. And then occasionally they just have games like this where they just don't seem to, to switch on at all. Now I know obviously this week they've played in a cup final. There is rotation in the squad. Everyone's a little bit tired. Fine. But it felt like they were starting to get some momentum in Serie A and then to drop points. So look, Hellas aren't a bad side at all, right? They're, they're, they're reason. There's a reason that Hellas are where they are in the table because they've, they've had a really, really good season and they're, they're performing at that kind of 
sub Europa level then you know not far off that Europa League spot you'd imagine depending on how the Europa Conference League shakes out in terms of where it's going to end up with those extra spots that they might well be in contention for a Conference League spot um, and it would be well deserved but it really did upset me that Napoli haven't managed to bounce on because I, I would love this more than anything I think you know I vaguely support Fiorentina in, in Italy but I would love more than anything Napoli to go and win a title in the year that Maradona died. I, in my defence, I do regret saying now. That <laughs> You've the cursed league. them. You've cursed them. I'm furious. And now my whole reputation, although there may be little of it, is already on the line. <laughs> so now we'll go to France, where the Derby de Rhone between Saint-Étienne and Lyon was quite eventful, to say the least, with Lyon triumphing 5-0 in what was another great win fully and especially bouncing back after their their demoralizing defeat to Mets last week conceding that late goal and it's just showing that they are that they're a completely different outfit to what they were in league of last year and as well as in the Champions League as well they they're a lot more attacking and they're a lot more expressive as well and they're just a lot more fun to watch really Saint Etienne are, are a bit of a mess, aren't they? Uh, quietly, no one's no one's hugely talking about it. But Claude Puel's outfit are are a bit of a state. Three losses in a row, no wins in five. Um, you know, four points off the drop zone, where there are teams with games and two games even in hand on them. They are they are not a pretty side to watch at the moment. And and Leon took full advantage. And and I think that if you look at this and you think. You know, we were talking earlier about Nico Elvedi, right? And, and and becoming a scoring sensation. Well, Marcelo has him has himself a shout as well. He he, he nabbed I, two at the weekend as well. And I just want to say Marcelo doesn't have three goals in two games like Elvedi. <laughs> no, he's got two in one though. Same. So we'll uh, we'll put them next to each other. And yeah, I mean, look, just they were just really bad, weren't they, Etienne and and, and San Etienne, and it was. You know, Leon were good. I give them full credit, and they have been good this season. I'm not trying to take anything away from Leon, but wow, I I, I thought Saint Etienne hadn't been particularly good, but I was not expecting them to be quite that bad. Yeah, and I I think it's it's quite surprising that one of the most successful teams in French history are slowly slipping. Well, they basically are in a relegation battle now, and it's a situation similar to that of Schalke, which this has been persisting now for quite a while and I think if they do somehow survive the drop this year if they don't sort everything out in the summer it could be there could be a case that they get relegated next year and you see one of if not the most successful club in France in Ligue 2 which is something you wouldn't normally expect. No not at all I mean look the Saint-Étienne are traditionally one of France's big guns, right? And they are in free fall at the moment, and I'm not quite sure how they get out of it. And obviously, with this result for Lyon, we do have a title race on our hands. We did before, but we definitely do now in Ligue 1. So, how far do you both think Lyon can go? Do you think they're they're able to to possibly topple PSG? Yeah, I, w- I would probably say so. I, I do like talking about consistency and how to win the title. You you really just got to nail it every week, week in, week out. Except Lyon doesn't really have to do that, right? They don't have to be perfectly consistent like you would do in any other league because PSG has been inconsistent this season. 
and they can't really find seem to find their groove yet. And unless Pochettino just magically sorts everything out all of a sudden and PSG just wins the next 15 games or so, they're going to keep on having just just waving up and down a little bit, occasionally drawing some games they shouldn't, occasionally losing some games they shouldn't. And that, that gives Lyon a pretty big chance because if they can just do the same as PSG, but a little bit better, they they can't take that top spot, right? And then, uh, and then, well, it's just a matter of who's who 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 drops the least points, which sounds obvious, right? Normally, you would have PSG just every single week getting three points in out in out. Except we, it, it, similar to the season in which Monaco won the league, the, the, the Parisians just aren't on it, right? They they they're just dipping a little bit, and Lyon can can capitalize on that if they can play. If they can string together some good results, string together a, a pretty decent season, they can just capture that top spot. Yeah, I think this is pretty much spot on. It's it's one of those things where I, I think you you have to be Leon or Lille or Monaco, to be honest, who I think are actually in this title race, six points behind. I don't, I don't think they're out of it either. I think all of them, you will look at this and think, you know, anyone that's going to beat PSG needs to be winning. I mean, let, let's look at the table. 21 games played, right? So there's... 17 games or so less i think you need 13 wins if you're gonna if you're gonna topple psg from here 12 13 wins um which is a big ask you know from from 17 games that's a lot of a lot of games what i think leon and monaco have in their locker perhaps a little bit more than the others is that they don't have european fixtures to contend with and therefore the schedule, which is already truncated, obviously, this year, is going to be a little bit less bruising for them, I think, than it is perhaps for a PSG. There's a period here in in the kind of middle of March where PSG have to play Barcelona, Lyon, Lille in, in the space of two weeks, basically, right? They have a, the second leg of a Champions League. Then they play Nantes three days later. Then they play Lyon and then they play Lille in a kind of really, really truncated little period. And I think that that is the period where this is won or lost, right? If, if PSG win all of those, well, win their two league games there against Lyon and Lille, I think they win it. Um, but just before you know that, they have Barcelona on a Tuesday night, 16th of February, and then they have Monaco on the Saturday. Now, these are, are games where they can't really rotate, right? They're, you know, Monaco are, are finding some form themselves. And as we say, six points off now, big win over Marseille at the weekend. And, and that's where I think this title race is won or lost. Now, if Pochettino has managed to get his, you know, shit in gear, basically, by this time, then he will be he will be fine. He'll be able to to maintain that momentum through these periods and, and get the job done. But he's still learning. He's still getting to grips with this team. There's, you know, I, I think that Champions League tie against Barcelona is a huge opportunity for PSG, um, not only to, to exercise some ghosts of the past, obviously, but but also because Barcelona have been so poor this year to to really go on and, and and make a statement win in the competition and i think that if that if that goes ahead and they have to you know play quite too difficult too tired four out legs against barcelona then their league form could suffer and i think that that leon and leo could pr- prosper from that I, I think you've hit a pretty good angle there right because even if they do try and rotate throughout and and keep their team fresh in this very very packed calendar in this very difficult year where whenever they've tried to bring on some some different players some subs on to to start to start some theoretically easier games they've just choked it without their without their Mbappe's without their Neymar with without all these star players they just 
don't really do it very well. And they, they, they just seem a little bit dead. Di Maria is essentially their only good rotation player, and and he's not even fully rotated. He he starts a lot of games, yeah. and he will also be quite tired. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, and and how Pochettino manages this squad determines how this title race checks out. I think. And an area that me and Nick talk about a lot is is how weak the PSG defense has been in the past, mm. and how easily they are broken apart by by teams better than them. And and the smaller teams in Liga as well, which is where they've, in recent times, seemed to stumble. Like the game against Angers uh, a few weeks ago, yes, they won the one nil, but it was quite a close game in which Angers had had their chances to really punish the uh, PSG, but they were just unable to. So yeah, we 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 have been, I wouldn't say haters, but we have criticised the PSG. Very harsh critics. <laughs> how how poor it's been really yeah no i think that's fair enough like i mean if you lose a player of tiago silva's you know not necessarily caliber in terms of uh being on the pitch because i think they have players as good as tiago silva in in marquinhos and kimpembe in terms of ability but also his leadership uh and and that's it's such a a term that's thrown around so much isn't it you know what is leadership in the dressing room surely your best players play etc etc but i think it helps um and and the fact that some of those have been you know injured through this campaign we've seen a fair bit of danilo Pereira at center back which i hate um like i hate a lot and you know mostly because i just really like danilo and i want him to play in midfield because i think he's good there but you, you've seen with with PSG that they you know they do look a little bit fragile when the when like you say when the rotational aspect of this comes out and I think more so than anywhere else in defense um and then you know you look at Alphonse Ariola's out on loan at Fulham at my own beloved Fulham and has performed in terms of is is currently performing behind Jan Oblak perhaps only as the best you know keeper per saves made in in Europe and you think of this and you look at it and you go, why have you let him go out on loan? You weird club, like strange little club where, you know, who doesn't, and they've let him out on loan with a purchase option. And and look, Kaylor Navas is brilliant. I'm not, I'm not knocking him and I'm not suggesting that Ariola should start ahead of Kaylor Navas because they, they bring different things to the team. But it does seem weird that in a campaign, which was already short and already, you know, ready to, to move on, they decided to to take up their option on on Sergio Rico, who also played at Fulham and was was excellent, but not quite to the Areola level. Um and, and to let Areola out on loan when they're having to rotate because of injuries. And it did just confuse me a little bit. And PSG have a have a strange kind of element in these kind of things. And while we're on PSG uh, and we were just talking about the issues with the defence, they beat Montpellier four 0 with a game, yes, Montpellier did go down to 10 men quite early on with the goalkeeper getting sent off, but it was Neymar and Mbappe just run, ran the show, really. Uh, although Neymar only got one assist, it was away from his contributions where he shone. Mbappe obviously got two goals as well, but the, the Fab Four were reunited with Mbappe, Neymar, Mario Riccardi and Di Maria all starting together again. And look what happened, right? First goals for Mbappe after under Pochettino, which is which is impressive, um, but yeah, I think look when Nick said it a minute ago, but he's right. It is when he when you have the PSG full strength eleven, there's no side in France that's going to beat them, right? They are they are the best team in France by by some distance, but 
when they have to rotate, they become fallible. And I think they're going to have to rotate in this run-in. And that's the big job that Pochettino has on his hands now. How do you rotate properly, uh, knowing that your team become fragile when you do rotate? And and that's the that's the kicker if they can you know see that through the see the through, see the season through or not. And another team, uh, as as you had said, who are a bit of dark horses in the title race, really, as they are managed to sneak their way up in there is Monaco. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, they're quite a young team as well. They've managed to revert back to what worked for them when they when they won Liga a few years ago. And they go and beat Marseille 3-1. Yeah, comfortable, wasn't it? Um, it was a quite a strange game in that it, you know, Marseille went ahead and it felt like it felt like they that Monaco were vaguely in charge for most of it. I, I didn't uh, even when Marseille were winning, I didn't feel like they were going to going to win the game. That shot, their goal in the tenth minute or so, I thought I think was their only shot on target, and they had a couple of sort of pot shots from from range, but there was nothing major apart from that that I thought that they were going to score. And from that moment on, it felt like it was all Marseille, uh, all Monaco, and and so it proved it was you know very. As soon as the second half started and they got the equaliser, there was only one way that game was going, and, and so it proved. I, I feel like if this game just kind of summarised Marseille's season, it's just lack of confidence from both the team as a whole and the individual players, such as such as some that I really like, like Tovan and, and Paye. They just haven't really been on their game this season, yeah. and, and, and nor has the team as a whole. Like, if you concede, uh, again, coming back to the to the point of, of conceding from 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 set pieces, Monaco scored two goals from corners and one from a free kick. And it, it, it just comes down to how concentrated are you when the ball comes in? How, how tight are you marking your man? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more that matters than that. But you, you would just see how, how shaky and scared they were when, when they were defending. And, and, and I just feel like the team was nervous and they, and they didn't really know what they, they were doing. And they just need to... They just need someone who will lift them up morally, so so that they can confidently move the ball around. And just no, don't panic when when teams attack them, and someone to structure them when they attack. Because right now they're just very on and off. Sometimes they bang together a really great match, and then and then they're, when they play against bigger teams, they they're so shaky, and and they just need to solidify themselves, calm down, and just look at things more clearly. Yeah, I, I think this is it. Like, uh, four games ago, right, we were looking at, at this Marseille team who had two games in hand on the leaders and were about six points back. And you're looking at it and going, OK, you know, Marseille have found some some rhythm and they look like they could be in a title race. If they win their two games in hand. The and we, We're kind of moving up the league and this is, could be a four-way title race. Since then, they've drawn one and lost three. It was almost as if, Marseille realized that they could be in the title race and just absolutely bottled it. And and there's so much more to it than that, as you say, Nick, but but confidence is huge. And and it felt like as soon as they realized that they weren't miles off being in the conversation, they completely just shat the bed, basically, and and, and just looked at it and went, Oh no, that can't be us. We're in the fifth place race, actually. We'll uh, we'll just stay down here. Thanks very much for coming. Um, and 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 I think you like like you say it's a bit of a summary of their season in that they'll look good for a couple of games and then suddenly everyone will be like oh Marseille are good aren't they and then as soon as anyone does that they just seem to fall off a cliff again. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as and then as soon as they, as soon as they take their first loss as well, their first loss that comes that cuts their win streak, it, it it just shatters the team. I, I, I feel and then suddenly everyone just realizes that oh 
can we really do this? Can we really recover? And then they just do what they're doing now. And then they're just tumbling further and further down. And now they don't realistically look like they can challenge for top spot or even a Champions League spot. I, I, I generally don't think they can even get into Europe if they if they can't just get their shit together. They, they just need to just sit down, concentrate and reevaluate how they want to to just mentally take up these next few matches as well as obviously fix up whatever tactical problems they're currently suffering from and, and, just, and they're holding them back. Yeah, yeah. And before we move on, I just want to shout out Yusufa Fafana and Oriellen Tushuemi, who are the midfield duo of Monaco. They're both relatively young, but they are both looking very exciting and look like probably the two next best prospects from the Monaco Academy. And it'll probably be only a matter of years before they move to PSG. <laughs> So now we're going to have our goal song break, which was picked by Jack, not as normally, so it's not going to be some terrible, generic European goal song. And yeah, so we'll be back to, to review it. Welcome back. And so I'll just hand it over to Jack to explain why he chose that specific goal song. Yeah, it's, I've also just broken the podcast because it's not actually a goal song, um, but it is it is a football related song. So um, I, I'm going to take take that uh, as good enough. It's a song called Palladio. It's by Escala, who were uh, one of these random bands that came through on like a like a really crap show, like Britain's Got Talent or something. Um and they were rubbish, frankly. They were, um, they, well, they weren't rubbish. They were, they're obviously exceptionally talented musicians, but they didn't release anything good apart from that, um, which is, uh, you know, a, a really cool piece of music. And they play it uh, before Fulham games. It's one of the it's one of the songs that basically the teams walk out to, um, and so it has a special place in my heart because it feels, you know, like a like a kind of key part of the Fulham match day experience, uh, which I miss more every single day. And and for obvious legal reasons, I'm going to have to ask you for your totally unbiased rating of the song, preferably out of ten. Preferably out of ten, uh, which is like really mix it up and just give it like a you know give it a, a nine point three. Um, I would say eight. Um, it's uh, it's quite a, it's quite a cool piece of music, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with an eight. Okay, what Nick, about- what about you? You're gonna go for your standard seven out of ten, like every single song. No, I actually like this in quite a lot. It's quite exciting. I would love to walk into a stadium and just hear this. It's very exciting and it builds a lot of atmosphere, doesn't it? So I'll give that an eight. I like this a lot. Yes. What a day. What a day. <laughs> I've, I've, trumped, I've trumped the average, which is key. <laughs> Genuinely unbiased. I, I do really like it. Well, you're going to hate me for what I'm about to say. It's, it's, it's my personal favourites are the cheesy Turkish goal songs <laughs> that they play like Fenerbahce, Sevilla Sport, places like that. So it's not up to that standard. So I'm going to have to give it probably a five. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I, I mean, it's, it is not, to be fair. It's not, I was kind of, I was thinking about trying to find some Euro trash, like some proper, like happy house 
Um, but uh, I decided to go a little bit more classy. But but you know, here we are. It's not for everyone, but I respect it nonetheless. And so now we'll start with La Liga, where Atletico Madrid played played against Valencia in a game which finished three one. And I'm just gonna hand it over to to Nick to take the reins from here. It was quite a tricky game for for Leti in the in, in the first half because Uda Rakic, Valencia midfielder, he he scored a really really nice goal. Oh, just try. Yeah, another goal. It was wonderful. Just smacked it from outside the box. It, when Oblak can't do anything, that's when you know you've scored an absolutely amazing goal. He just flew into the top corner. Atleti were fighting an uphill an uphill battle against Valencia throughout most of the first half until uh, until uh, until a uh, uh, until bad defending from a set piece, which seems to have been a, a bit of a theme this week, um, ended up in, in Joao Felix scoring quite an interesting goal. It looked a little bit Slatin-like. He just prods his studs up, slaps it a little bit with with his heel and it goes in. And then walking to the second half, even even in the scoreline, the, the game was completely different. But instead just buckled. They couldn't hold on to the lead. They just seemed so nervous and the defense was really terrible. And and then also Atleti's attack had smelt blood. And 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 seeing Lemar, Lemar, Joao Felix, Suarez, Llorente and Carrasco all played together, just the five of them, they always seem so unstoppable when they're when they're on their game as they were as they were then on today on that day. And it's a bit of a miracle that Valencia only only conceded three. Because just the quality and the fluidity of, of the Atleti attack it, it, it's just so different to to what Atleti experienced last season, and, and it was really it, it's just amazing to watch every time. And, and Valencia was was blown apart by it. Yeah, completely. I mean, just the you know credit must be given to Cholo, right, because of the way that he's changed this up, um, and the way that he has just transformed this team. You know, they they don't always play. I mean, the, the the formation itself is fluid now. And someone who, you know, who who played so rigidly within his means, right? So rigidly within his system is now just mixing things up left, right and center. And you know, we've got we've got flying wing backs at times. We've got Llorente becoming this outrageous right winger who basically has the best end product in Europe. Every time Llorente gets down the right, Atleti seems to score. Um, you know, Koke just sort of holding it all together in the middle. Carrasco, it just and then you know, Jao Felix is the is the box of tricks, isn't he? Everyone else kind of knows their roles. Has their you know, Lamar is a, a brilliant direct runner. Carrasco has a bit of you know inside and cut about him, but Jao Felix is the trick box, and he's the one that when things look really really low blocky, he's the one they trust to open things up and. And then you have Luis Suarez, who, I mean, it's almost as if you can't say enough, isn't it? But the finish for the second goal, the goal that puts them ahead, the crucial goal, is just pure, classic Suarez. And the fact that he is just doing this week in, week out for Atleti, when Barcelona cannot buy themselves moments in the final third, they must be looking at this and going, what have we done? What have we done? And and Suarez has has rightfully just looked back at the Barcelona board and stuck two fingers up and been like, I'm still good enough. I've still got it at this level, uh, and it, and it's proving that week in week out. And I said this on ranks the other week. I don't I don't regret it at all. Um, Atleti have the title in the bag. It's done. It's over. It's finished. As far as I'm concerned, you, they they are that good. They are that consistent. Um, and I think that they're probably one of the two best teams in Europe at the moment. With the other being Manchester City over the last over the last kind of month and a half. I, I think that's how consistently brilliant they've been. 
Um, and I would not be surprised if Atleti go on to win the league and go deep in the Champions. Music to Nick's ears. It, it is absolutely music to my ears. And I, I find it extremely hard to disagree. Every time I watch Atleti this season, I'm I'm excited because it's such a fresh look on the team. And I mean, you covered it all already, really. Just just the difference that all that the whole team makes. And it's not just that, that, that Cholo suddenly completely shifted the focus into attacking and forgetting everything else. Yeah. The team defends so ridiculously well. As per always, Savic is having the season of his life. He has always been a, an amazing defender and now he is world-class. Just, it, it, it's... He doesn't really come to the conversation a lot in in best defenders in Europe because people don't watch Atletico very regularly. But any, anyone who does will see just how strong and how quick he is at, at cutting balls out, just embodying people off the ball. He just knows where to be, right place, right time, all the time. And and it's and it's not just one man in the defense. Obviously, as per always, it's a it's a strong cohesive unit. Yeah. Uh, and and having Jimenez and Edmosa who well also like Savic they're ridiculously good defenders and and particularly Edmosa has been very impressive because his first season was was pretty terrible not in terms of performance but in terms of playtime and now he's really solidified himself as one of Cholos's main men I think this is also the thing with Hermoso that's so impressive is the fact that he kind of slips into left back so seamlessly so regularly you know, because of the way that the team is set up, it means that, that players sort of drift in and out of positions. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, right? When you have Thomas Lamar in front of you, who's not particularly known for his ability to track back and, you know, and, and, and harness his defensive ability on on that left-hand side. And Russell seems to fill two roles at once for lots of games. And, and, and that in itself is impressive. But the fact he's doing it with such alarming rigidity and kind of the fact that he will not change, you know, he doesn't seem to, you know, you can't get change out of him is what I was trying to say there. And and look, this defensive unit is backed up the fact it has Yano Black behind it. So even if you make a mistake, it's going to take something special to beat him. And it did, they got something special this weekend, right? You know, they, they, something special was the goal from Rajic, but... The fact that it didn't seem to 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 phase Asteti, they came back into the game. That's a tricky task at the, at the best of times, and and it didn't seem to bother them. You know, they were like, "We're not going to concede anymore. That's fine." And and like you say, three one was kind to Valencia in the end because Asteti split them open time and time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. The way Atleti's mentality has changed from last season as well is totally different. A year ago, I would not have seen Atleti winning this by no way. Just the team would have. Been so demoralized and and lost focus and and just despaired really and now they just went out second half, raring ready to go, knowing knowing what they had to do and kept kept their cool in 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 defense knowing knowing they were better than the opposition and and that's so important to to the title race as you said and and it, it really makes them very very serious contenders for the title. Mm-hmm. And so a team that we have kind of. Discounted as title title contenders due to their recent performances was Barcelona, who who beat Elche two 0 with a nice goal by Frankie De Jong. But most importantly, for the context of this podcast, a late goal by Ricky Poich, who is obviously whose biggest fan is right here in in Nick. I I'm not far behind for what it's worth. I'm a, I'm an also a big Ricky Poich fanboy. He, I, I just think he's magical in, in, in every sense. Just the way he plays and the way he loves his club so much. 
it, it, it's su- such a an enjoy he's such an enjoyable person to follow and and, and I think I'm, I'm so happy for him that, that he scored and he and he just looked delighted when he scored his first Barcelona goal right because he's been fighting for this he's been essentially fighting a, a battle with Coleman who who doesn't want to give him minutes and then Enrique just every time he steps on the pitch he sets out to prove him wrong and show what a valuable member of the team he is and, and he just did that today just I mean going out there and and grabbing himself a goal in five minutes it, it's it's nothing at all he was subbed on in the 88th minute I believe and and or subbed on in the 85th and scored in the 88th something like that to be able to, to be that effective it, it's crazy and, and it's more than that it, he's not just a goal scorer he, he he just transformed the midfield I say this all the time whenever we talk about Barcelona but Ricky changes changes the team completely and he has to start every game. It, it, it's it's what would make Barcelona competitive again. Yeah, no, I actually, well, I mean, I think it's going to take more than that to make Barcelona competitive again, if I'm honest. Um, I, I think there's too many problems at play, but I do agree. The, what you see every time Ricky comes on is that the tempo of the game increases by about tenfold. And a lot of teams can't keep up with the pace that Barcelona play at when they play at pace. But they often don't. And it's quite a strange thing that you have to watch time and time again because you're like, if Barcelona played like this all the time, they would win far more games. Uh, and they would they would take teams apart because playing at that pace and, ham- and the ball pinging around in the midfield, and, and it is kind of a, a hark back to Barcelona of yesteryear, right? It, it allows you to see that kind of the ball is flying all over the place, completely in control, but it's moving at such pace that teams are going back and forth and back and forth, you know, and, and, and that's a very difficult thing to defend against. And that's what Ricky brings to the table. But the fact is that Kerman seems to want to slow the game down. And that to me doesn't make any sense because it's when Barcelona are at their free flowing best that they've looked good this season. And look, I was delighted for him to get his goal as well. I, I mean, for what it's worth, I've been, I've been pushing Ricky Puig for a while. I've been pushing Carlos Elena for a while as well, who I also really like. Um, he's obviously gone off on loan again uh, to Hetafe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I thought he was brilliant when he came to Betis. He did really well and he, came, he went back to Barcelona and I expected him to make a claim for starting this season. And, and you know, and now he's just there, gone out on loan again. And I, I think his spell at, uh, at the Nel Camp must, might be over quite soon, which, which makes me sad. Um, but I, I think those kind of players who are able to ping the ball around the midfield and Frankie, who, who is able to do this as well, have that, you know, they had the opportunity to make these things happen. And, and Kerman seems to just want to pull things back time and time again to slow things down. And, and, and it makes me quite sad. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely very weird. He just insists on playing Busquets and Busquets and or Pjanic, which is which is just weird because they're both quite old. They're both quite slow. And whenever they're in the midfield, not not only is the game just not a, not the speed that that they could have it at, they're just uncreative. They just receive the ball, they just don't turn very quickly, and end up having to pass it just short pass back, short pass to the side. Nothing ever happens. You just have this useless double pivot, or one that's transitioned more to to, to this one single pivot, being either Busquets or Pjanic. But you just have have them receive the ball. They just kind of look up, can't really find anything to do with the ball, and just do the, the most plain pass. And then when you have Ricky Puig in the team, he's always active. He's he's finding ways in which he can do, do the unusual, do do the unexpected. And, and that's really where um, where his value, most of his value lies as a player and as a, as a as a part of the team. And just 
he 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 brings a new life and a new dimension to to Barcelona's attack. Really, yeah, I think I think I would still I would probably still start Pjanic. I would start a midfield three of Frankie Pjanic and Ricky Puig. I, I think that would be a a midfield that would bring dynamism and you know the ability to pick passes short and long. Um, but we just haven't seen it enough this year, and it, you know it's, I think it's it's a shame. That's a good shot, actually, especially because the young is playing as a bit more of a as a Llorente, as a as a just weird midfielder who just runs around up and down the pitch, sometimes recovering the ball, sometimes going up to try and score or assist. You would you would need Pjanic to to calm it down a little bit, control the midfield, and just keep it orderly. Because well, I mean, talking about Frankie de Jong, he sc- he scored again and he and he assisted again today. His goal wasn't super impressive, to be fair. Except it's it's a product of his repositioning that Coleman has invented invented for him. Some, something which I think was inspired by Llorente's repositioning by by Simeone, in which in which Coleman has essentially decided to to just get the young, who is who traditionally once again like Llorente, once once a defensive midfielder, bring him up more and just have him. In in Spanish, you would say "corre caminos," which just means road runner. <laughs> he just runs up and down the pitch the whole time. Box to box. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's he's a bit of a box to box midfielder now, which is working pretty decently so far. It doesn't plan his best attributes, and it leaves a bit of a gap in the midfield sometimes. But he is scoring and he's assisting, so for now it, it's good. So I can't really criticize it too harshly. Yeah, exactly. For now, it'll work. Eh? Now, after after a special request. By, by Jack, we'll briefly look at Real Sociedad versus Real Betis. And I think it's something to do with one particular player from Real Betis. <laughs> um, obviously, my, my, my actual father, Joaquin, um, was came on. Philip Betis were 2-0 down, 79 minutes. Joaquin came on, assisted, scored the equaliser. Delicious, 2 all. Big, big result um, because Betis haven't been particularly good at coming from behind. Uh, they also haven't drawn very many games this season. It is very much boom or bust with Betis when you when you look at it. I think it was only our third draw of 20 games. Won eight, lost nine. It is fully like, oh, some, some weeks Betis are unbelievable and some weeks they are absolutely dreadful. And that's also kind of why I fell in love with them. So I can't knock it too much, but it would be good to get some wins on the board. Um, and uh, but I did think this was a good point away at Sociedad, who have, who have been excellent um, for for the to the start of the season. They've they've dropped off a little bit of late, but you'd imagine a two nil win, a two nil up with ten minutes to go at home. You'd 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 expect them to see the game out, and yet um, Betis managed to to sneak back and win, take a point. So yeah, I just wanted to say, Joaquin, thirty nine years old, and still still absolutely doing the bits of Betis. Uh, what a player! What a man! What a role model! Uh, my captain. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, once Diego Lainez came off for Betis, I thought they're a little bit screwed because he wasn't playing incredibly well as as well as he he has shown this season. He, he he's still a little bit inexperienced and it's notable. But once his quality and his energy was missing from Betis, I I, I just thought that the that they weren't able to manage to claw back. And then of course Joaquin with his just what a guy. He, he is Betis. He is Betis. <laughs> he is Betis. He's a, you know, I can only hope that at one point I'm ever as important to something or someone as Joaquin is to Real Betis. Absolutely. What a, what a player. I, I, I also love him. He's just one of my favorite sport personalities in general and players. He, he's always been quite good. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. That's all I really wanted to add on Betis. I just, I can't go talking about La Liga without, uh, without letting dad, let dad get mentioned. 
And so on the other side of Seville, uh, Sevilla beat Cadiz 3 0, but mm. most <laughs> most importantly was the fact that Yusuf in, in the Serie is continuing his great form by scoring another hat trick, clearly making Lobotegi rue the reason for starting Luke de Jong over him in the Europa League final. It's so bizarre. But, like, he's just, like, suddenly turned into prime R9. Like, I'm not really sure what to do about it. It's like, you know, all of a sudden, Yusuf Enesiri, who I really like, the Leganes, and, and I was really excited, and then he signed for Sevilla, and obviously I was extremely upset um, by, by that. And and it is one of the one of those things where he just hadn't really got, not, not a look-in, because he'd been given opportunities, but they were a bit sporadic. He was part of that rotation. I'm not quite sure what anybody sees in Luke de Jong. I know he was excellent in the Europa League final, but you know, I, I've seen him play for various sides and I've just never been wildly impressed by him. He just seems such a one-dimensional player to me. And and I'm sure that there'll be people who have watched him you know, longer, longer and harder than I have um, who will tell me that he has more to his game than just being a big number nine in the box. But I just don't see it. I mean, it always frustrated me that in the series he didn't get more minutes. And now he's found himself a rhythm, found himself a run in the team, and he's looking absolutely unplayable. And it made me laugh when West Ham made a bid for him this month. I was like, if you'd made a bid for him in the summer, then you might have been able to have a conversation. Instead, you've made a bid when he's in the form of his life, leading the line for Sevilla. Why on earth would he leave to join West Ham? Um, but yeah, that's um, it, he's he's just exceptional at the moment. And even from across the across the pond in in green and white, it's um, it's difficult to to not just stand up and applaud when a player is playing this well. Just goes to show that. Barcelona's recruitment is so bad, they clearly signed the wrong Leganes striker. <laughs> he, was the nine, he was the nine they needed all along. Finally, in La Liga, uh, Real Madrid beat Alaves 4-1, but most notably, Eden Hazard managed to score his first goal since October. And we'll hopefully use this as a way to help him regain some sort of form and most importantly, fitness as well. Yeah, his time at Real Madrid's been a mess, hasn't it? Um, it? It's hard to quantify, you know, when a player you know is this talented and that good, and then he just physically cannot cannot get fit to play. It, it's a little bit disheartening, frankly. And and look, I, I, I don't really bear any great love for Real Madrid, um, and I don't really bear any great love for Eden Hazard. But, you know, when you know someone is that good and you don't get to see them you know, playing regularly and showing what they're capable of, I think is a disappointment for anyone that genuinely just likes the game and likes watching it. And so I'm glad to see him back on the pitch. I'm glad to see him back in the goals. Uh, and hopefully this is finally the, the, you know, the kind of thing he needs. I think this time he's come back a little bit under the radar for the first time. And, and maybe that's good for him because, you know, there's not this wild pressure on him to perform immediately and, and go and become this, you know, Galactico like absolutely you know from the moment go this time when he's come back everyone's a bit like all right he'll probably be gone again in three games and actually that that might be the kind of under the radar moment he needs to actually find himself a bit of a rhythm and a run inside yeah and hopefully that is the catalyst for the way that hazard can get back to being the hazard that we all knew and maybe loved depending on your allegiances (laughs) Uh, i was just gonna say it not to be too reactionary but Hazard did play an extremely good game in terms of both goal scoring and, and creation. 
which is exciting to see for anyone who, who will want him to be back to his Chelsea form because he did show a, a reflection of, of what he used to be. So it, it'll be interesting if he can keep it up. Yeah, absolutely. And finally in Spain, I'm, I'm sad, I'm, I'm not sad, I'm gutted to, to report that Cornea lost to Barcelona in extra time. I'll make that clear. And then also, sadly, my now adopted third team, Ibiza, lost to Athletic Bilbao. <laughs> in absolute fairness to Cornea, yeah, they put on a massive fight for Barcelona, took the game to extra time. Their goalkeeper had an outrageously good game until extra time. He saved two penalties, and, and then he, he really could have done more for the two he conceded. But when you're playing against Barcelona... And you just have have such a previously good game. Fine, I I, I understand that he had a, a few slip ups. He was <laughs> just so good. It, it, there's a bit of a joke in Spain going around right now that goalkeepers become prime Neuer whenever they play either Barcelona or Real Madrid because because when Real Madrid got knocked out by Alcoyano as well, their goalkeeper who we who we praised as well, he was also insanely good. My Real, I have um, some shares in Real Mercia. Um, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't even get to this stage. So ultimately, I'm just just quite sad. It's, uh, it's, it's a strange one. I, I hope that the Paprika men will one day return to the top table of Spanish football. And so finally, because we lived in Belgium, we feel like we've got an obligation to cover the <laughs> Belgian title race or the lack of one. And so, in what I've decided to coin the Battle of Bruges, Club Bruges beat second place at Genk. 3-2 in, in an interesting game where Bas Dost has continued his, his hot start at Club Bruges, scoring yet again. But the standout player in this game was Noah Lang. The, the man that is on loan from Ajax at Club Bruges is, is looking like the best player in Belgium this season so far. He just, it's, he's just great. He's so technical. He's such a technical dribbler. He's so direct. He causes so many issues for defences. And I, I don't think it will be long before we actually see him at a bigger club. That is not it, it really won't be Lang at all before he, he just moves to a bigger club in Europe, will it? Very good. Very good. I didn't realise how far ahead Club Bruges were. Yeah. They're 12 so, points clear with 13 yeah. games to go. <laughs> win extended their lead to 12 points and although their points will be split in half when they go into the next stage it's still a massive lead to have with no team really looking like they'll be able to catch them now so I, I hate to say this but I think the title race is over already unless they have some massive collapse but there is one man who who we, we, we do talk about quite regularly he did go under the radar a bit but he's now back on ours it's Raphael Holzenhauser of Beershot. He's he's continued. He's picked up his form again and and is a master of set pieces. And he's a player that should be looked out for as he is coined the Austrian Messi. <laughs> I'll have to keep an eye out. I, I've not heard of this man, but I'm going to be looking yeah. him up now. Yes, no, we've got the Beershot fans on on this podcast. <laughs> so, sadly, that is it for today. We have thoroughly enjoyed having you on jack no thank you so much for having me it's been a it's been a real pleasure we would you are welcome back anytime mainly because we probably won't have any other guests <laughs> we do need more people 
the uh, the options the options are low, so you might get a recall. Thank you, I appreciate it. I didn't mean that to come across <laughs> in a bad way. I'm only joking, mate. I'm only joking. Thank you. That's um, it's been a real fun. I've really enjoyed it, um, and you know, talking about some things that I don't necessarily get even the space to talk about even on ranks three times a week we never did de- 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 that deeper dive into monaco marseille so i've uh i've thoroughly enjoyed my time thank you for having me yeah also enjoyed having you very much thank you for coming on no, thank you mate sadly it will be back to me and nick on thursday this is a bit longer than normal but we thought it's a special episode to kind of deserve and so yeah please subscribe or follow us uh, like us, rate us, whatever, share us. Yeah, and we'll see you on Thursday with just me and Nick. <laughs>